<clears throat> we are ready to begin our second class. Our speaker is our brother Jason Robinson. And the theme for Brother Robinson's classes this week is the Tales of the Giants. And today's class is entitled The Tribe of Giant Fighters. So, Brother Jason. Thank you very much, Brother Paul, and a good morning, brothers and sisters. It is our final morning together, which is crazy. As I say it, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed the week and uh, thank you very much for the invite out this week. Um, my family and I have had a fabulous time here at uh, Midwest Bible School. Um, in case we didn't notice throughout our week, there was a tribe that produces a lot of giant slayers. And as we were going through, we consistently saw how these giant fighters were coming from this tribe of Judah. Now, after today, I have some great news. You will never have to hear that crazy Californian say the word giant ever again. Today is the last day. All right, you guys made it. Um, but what today is all about is making what we've learned this week last, not just for a day, not the end of next week, uh, not even the rest of your lives, but actually what scriptures does a very good job of showing is that giant slaying uh, is something that can be passed on. It's a trait that we can teach others. It certainly was a trait in the tribe of Judah. Almost everyone who beats giants was from that tribe. Some were adopted into it. Others were born into it. Some kings, some servants, some old, some young. But whatever reason, Judah was great at beating giants. And today's goal is really trying to establish the importance of um, looking at this lineage and, and making family habits of fighting these giants. You see, giants, uh, destroying giants isn't something that just you need to be worried about. The giants that we beat starting next week, starting Monday, they may be tiny compared to the giants that our children will face. You see, the world has mastered the art of designing, curating, and customizing giants to the point that in the lives of our kids, it makes some of us think that giants can be good and pure, even deceiving us into thinking that giants have the right to be in our family or in our ecclesia. And so let's take a look at where we've come so far this week together. It's been a fantastic week, and we start off on Monday really mentioning how we wanted to build a persona around our giant. We want to spend our week making them feel personable, relatable, but beatable. And I think we may have been surprised at just how uh, successful some of us were able to accomplish that. You see, as it turns out, scriptures was full of heroes of old who fought giants. We looked at how Joshua was just a big book about fighting giants in the land, how Deuteronomy, how its mighty speech started off with three chapters on how God would help anyone who wanted to defeat giants. And from Caleb, scripture's most successful giant slayer to David, whose warrior career started and ended with giants. And as I've mentioned, I thoroughly have enjoyed diving deeper into the wonders of scripture with you this week. Uh, and I sincerely hope we're all a little more motivated maybe at the end of this week to go home from this school and keep fighting. So our goal in the final session really is to focus on looking ahead. Uh, it's wonderful if we can fight and take down giants. 
but I believe scripture places an equal importance on mothers and fathers, aunts and uncles, grandparents and siblings to try their best to spread these principles to another generation. Now, before we begin, it's very important to understand that we all do have free will. Our children have free will. We can do everything flawlessly by the book. And our children have that free will and can still choose different paths in their lives. This happens. It's unfortunate, but like everything, prayer, love, and seeking will be necessary. But we'll focus our final session this morning on how scriptures laid out for us examples of old, of giant slaying parents and mentors. We'll start off by just reviewing what we didn't have a ton of time to get to yesterday, which was in 2 Samuel chapter 21, the last giants, the list of the four giants at the end of Samuel. These were the brothers, as some think, of Goliath. When David charged towards Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, he took five stones, one for Goliath, possibly four for these brothers here. They are called the sons of the giant in 2 Samuel 21. They were the descendants of the Raphah. They were the Rephaim type of giants. Now, we looked at yesterday the Ishbi Banab, our first giant there in verses 15 to 17. And we saw how this was David's final battle. He concluded this battle. He grew weary. And in fact, Abishai was the one who had to come to his saving. Abishai was the one who slew this giant in verse 15 to 17, uh, Ishbi Banab. But you read at the end of verse 17, it says, Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. And these servants, these warriors of David, have been so close to their king that even the thought of losing the king whom they idolized insisted that he never go to battle again. And this was David's final battle. It was a battle in which he grew weary against a giant. And it says they did not want the lamp of Israel to be quenched. What a testament to the giant slayer king of Israel. His army, now trained to fight giants themselves, wanted nothing but the safety of their king. We move on to verse 18. And it says, and it came to pass after this, that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushethite slew Saph, which was of the sons of the Rephaim. And so Saph, this next giant, it takes place at Gob. No one's really sure where Gob is, and the Septuagint translates it, translates it as Gath. The Chronicles account calls it Gezer. But he's slain by a man by the name of Sibachai. Sibachai was one of his governmental officials, a military leader of David. David had 24,000 soldiers, and each month, the captain of these 24,000 would change. The eighth month belonged to this man, Sibachai. His duty was to serve David in everything concerning his army of 24,000 during the eighth month, and he slew a giant. We have Lami. In 2 Samuel 21, verse 19, we find out his name in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 20, but he's slain by Elhanan. Elhanan, we recognize from two chapters later, was one of David's own mighty men. 2 Samuel 23 and a verse 24. 
And then we finally conclude 2 Samuel 21 with the last giant, the unnamed 24-digit giant. And it says, and there was again in verse 19, a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of Jerah-Oregim, the Bethlehemites slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam, and another battle in Gath where a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers, on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number, and he also was born to the Rephaim. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the Rephaim in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants." So in the end, we see a beautiful preview of who David had been to his people. He had influence on all those around him to fight the giants. His personal guards fought the giants. Those who worked in his government fought the giants. His mighty men, not only in valor, but also in faith, fought the giants. And even his own family learned how to fight the giants. But it says in verse 22, and they fell by the hand of David. And by the hand of his servants. David didn't do any fighting in this chapter. He didn't conquer any of the giants in this chapter. Not directly, anyway. But his influence in fighting giants was monumental in the nation at this time. And this, brothers and sisters, is one of the reasons why we fight. It's not just for ourselves, but for the health of our families and for the health of our ecclesia. Because the ecclesia in the wilderness claimed to have an interest in this kind of thing. We read many times throughout this week, Numbers chapter 14. Verse 3, it says, And wherefore hath Yahweh brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? The people knew, sorry, the people time and time again would claim that their intentions were, of course, on their children. Now, God saw through this. In fact, it was God's incredible love for the children that spared them from the same fate as their parents. While the parents died off in the wilderness due to their unbelief, God brought the next generation into. Those children, he brought them into the promised land. And he cared for and he nurtured them like a loving father. And it's this theme of training these yucks, this next generation to fight giants that we're going to look at today. Many times... In the book of Deuteronomy, in Joshua, and in Numbers, do we see this theme? Deuteronomy 1, surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land, save Caleb the son of Tephunah, he shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children. Deuteronomy chapter 2, until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host, except Deuteronomy 4 says, All these statutes and laws and the judgments, teach them to thy sons and thy sons' sons. Further on, verse 10, that they may teach their children. And so all of these principles, all these lessons, as we're going to see clearly through the lesson today, were meant to be passed on. And so while yesterday we finished fighting the giants, today we'll focus more on how do we pass on these traits to not only our children, but our nephews and our nieces, our Sunday school, our students, whatever it is, whatever interaction we have, the younger generation looks up to the older generation. And this is how it has always worked and how it always will work. So today, brothers and sisters, young people, we will teach our children 
how God will defeat giants. But first, I'd like to do a quick review of Caleb, because Caleb is where we'll start off with our lesson on spreading this trait. Caleb was a Gentile who understood the glory of the promises so much that he could actually recall every detail of his own inclusion into them. Is our inclusion in the promises of Galatians 3 what motivates us? Or do maybe we take them for granted? You see, there was one man who stood up over the rest of the spies. He knew victory could be achieved. Think about the ratio there for a second. 12 individuals, two knew they could take on giants. The majority were seen as sane, relatable leaders. 10 of them. Well, we'll survive if we follow the 10. So brothers and sisters, we spoke on this briefly yesterday, but we always seem to compare ourselves to the heroes of scripture. We're the Davids, not the Sauls. We're the Peters, not the Judases. We're the Josephs, not the Rubens. How often can we actually see ourselves in the shoes of those who were too too fearful, too lazy, too rebellious? You see, we could be really, really good at seeing other people as those kinds. We can see our brothers and sisters as Saul's, Judas's, Reuben's. Is that our giant, brothers and sisters? Maybe that's one of our giants. You see, if I passed out a second flyer, quick guide, and I said, I want you to fill this out as if you're filling out Brother Carl's giant. It would take us 45 seconds to fill it out. I know Brother Carl's giant better than he does. I am really glad he's here listening this week. Imagine if I was as good at focusing on my own giant as I was as focusing on yours. That's not Caleb. He understood his place. Number two, Caleb expected and he understood that a fight was necessary. He knew there was going to be a fight. He was 85 years old. But he was antsy to fight them. He seems to beg Joshua to let him fight the giants, all for the sake of his inheritance. Number three, he knew he would never be done. He expected and he prepared for the hardship ahead of him. He was 85 years old. And he was still fighting giants. Yesterday, we looked at how a teen fought giants. It's an ongoing, lifelong battle. It's a never-ending job. The goal is to just fight different ones. To beat one and to move on to the next. Beat one, move on to the next. Some of the teens and some of the adults have asked a great question. What if I just can't seem to beat one? What if it seems like I'm fighting one for mm, 45 years? It's not a bad thing, as long as you're fighting. We may be stuck fighting the same giant from our young days. Maybe it evolves, maybe it morphs, maybe it's identical. It's when you give up the battle that it gets bad. Caleb knew he just needed to keep on fighting. Caleb deflected all the strength to God. He never once mentioned his own ability or his own might. If Jason goes into the battle thinking Jason will beat the giants, 
Jason is toast. We have to look at this quality of Caleb honestly, I think. He knew that the fight did belong to Yahweh. And number five, he made a request knowing full well he was going to receive it. It was a promise by that man of Yahweh, Moses. He knew where the giants were, and he knew what he had to do to fight them. You see, it was faith that drove Caleb to action. Faith in Caleb's example created works. He was motivated by a pure and concentrated faith, and he was moved by these to act. It wasn't a hopeful sitting in his tent, hoping that the giants would miraculously explode. He was thinking, I have enough faith, and God will help me beat them, but I have to go do the work. And so with this example of Caleb and these five attributes, we see that he was a fascinating example, but he also understood the importance of teaching this to his family. It says in Numbers 14, verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went. The promise could have stopped there. But scriptures goes on and says, and his seed shall possess it. Same message in Deuteronomy. And to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Same message in Joshua. And thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. So the message about Caleb is, the inheritance belongs to him and his family. So when Caleb fought the giants, he did so knowing that he was going to pass on this experience, this inheritance to his children. And oh boy, did it work. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 15. Joshua 15, Caleb has just conquered Hebron finally. The land he spied 45 years earlier is now liberated from the giants which have been occupying his mind ever since. It's done. And he turns to the next city. Joshua 15, verse 15. And he went up thence to the inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber before was Kirjath Sefer. And so he goes to the next city, Kirjath Sefer, verse 15, 16. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjath Sefer and taketh it, to him will I give Axa my daughter to wife. So Caleb, having just conquered Hebron, he decides he's going to turn his attention to the next city, a city called Kirjath Sefer, 12 miles to the south of his new city of Hebron. It means city of books, the city of books, because more than likely it was filled with this wicked curriculum of all the nations, the written works of idolatry, immorality, witchcraft, a library city full of these things. And Caleb can't live with this. He's not content having these ideas oozing out that close to his city of Hebron. Because as we just looked at, for Caleb, the work was never actually done. So what he does is he sits around there and he thinks to himself, I know that God can give me the city if I wanted it. He knew the principles of Deuteronomy. But I'm interested in a contest, he says. And Caleb puts a challenge out there, doesn't he? He says that whoever defeats the city and the giants of Kirjath Sefer will be given my daughter Axa in marriage. Now think about this deal because it's not exactly what it appears on first glance. He's not offering his daughter so much as a reward. 
inasmuch as the man will be a reward for his daughter. Do you see the difference? This wasn't like the promise of Saul when another giant stood in the way of Israel's victory. Saul offered his daughter as a reward for doing something he did not want to do. Caleb offers his daughter to duplicate something he had just done. It wasn't just anyone who can go into a city and conquer it from giants. It took men of a different spirit, men like Caleb. So Caleb, in complete interest of preserving his seed of giant slayers, he creates this sort of faith contest, doesn't he? For the husband of his daughter, the man who shows the faith great enough to slay giants in this city will become part of my family and inherit part of my land. So before long, verse 17. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him Axa, his daughter, to wife. An incredibly faithful individual arises, Caleb. His nephew, Othniel, takes the city, and Caleb gives away his daughter to him. Caleb was searching for a man who put in the effort to beat giants for his wife, for his daughter. Nothing left less would be acceptable. And so Othniel steps up to the plate. But then we see the beautiful qualities of Axa. This is where the story really starts to get interesting. There was something about this line of Caleb that was purely motivated to follow God's commands, no matter what kind of effort, no matter what kind of work it took. So Caleb gives away his daughter to a man named Othniel. Now, Othniel, the name probably sounds familiar, was the first judge of the nation of Israel. You see, Israel went into the land. They conquered all this territory from other people. Now, over the course of the time the judge of the judges, these nations would say, you took our land. And they would send in small battles, small um, armies, and kind of catch the land back. And God would use these opportunities to teach his people a lesson, and they would repent, and God would send in a judge, the first of which was Othniel. As the first judge, he was filled with the spirit of God, we're told. As a warrior, he led his people effectively and in total faith in God. And as an administrator, he actually brought peace upon the land for 40 years. What a fantastic find for Axa. What a fantastic find for Caleb. If you want to raise a godly seed, brothers and sisters, if you want your children to learn how to slay giants, surround your family with people who slay giants. If you want your family to live alongside them, to ignore them, surround yourself with people who live with them as well. So Axa, newly married, shows in type exactly how the bride of Christ should act in their life. You see, God gave a challenge to his son. Slay giants in your life perfectly. Don't murmur, but act in faith. Don't tempt Yahweh, but be active in spirit. And our Lord Jesus Christ succeeded in this challenge flawlessly. There wasn't a single giant that he left alive. And so God will bring the bride, which he has been raising, his sons and daughters, to him who overcame. But Axa acts exactly like her father, Caleb. She approaches him, verse 18, and it came to pass as she came unto him that she moved him to ask of her father a field. And she lighted off her ass, and Caleb said unto her, what wouldest thou? Verse 19, who answered, 
give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. And we read this and we say, what a greedy little daughter. You just got the south land and now you're already asking me for more. Is that the attitude of Axa? Well, of course not. She is acting exactly like Caleb acted. Didn't Caleb go to Joshua and say, can I have that land? Can I just go get it now? And Axa takes advantage of the situation. And in her total zeal, she says, give me a blessing for you've given me the Southland. Give me also springs of water, she says. So Axa, the bride, acknowledges that she had been given the Southland, but she asks for more, the springs of water. Now this Southland is the word Negev, and it means to be dry or parched. So she asks from her father something that would have been very hard to deny your daughter, let alone as a wedding gift. She says, the land you've given me, while I absolutely appreciate it, it's dry and it's parched. It's Negev. Can you also give me the pools of water? Do you see how much she's just like her dad? She's filled with integrity and a faithful spirit, but she was extremely zealous. And she was quick to seize any opportunity that would present itself. She asks from her father the same thing we ask from our father, something we simply can't achieve on our own, something she didn't deserve, but something he was happy to give. She asks him for the land of springs and pools so that she may water the dry and parched land. Caleb, of course, is a type of the heavenly father himself, rewards her faith and her zeal as he most always does. And he acts in grace and presents his daughter with her very own inheritance in the land. And she, being much like those daughters of Zelophehad, craved a place in the promised land. But she understood that the only way to get there was through her father. And now she, along with her new husband, enjoy the land, not by their own merits, brothers and sisters, but as adopted children into that household of Abraham and the promises. We'll skim through this, but we see from these verses how Caleb was such a tremendous example to his family. And then we come to the main point and the main principle of today's session. We've seen how David was a great influence on all those who he came into contact with in literally slaying giants. We see how Caleb was interested in preserving this giant slaying trait of his family. But then we come to Joshua chapter 4, and we find out that they were just following a very simple rule that God built into everyday life of the children of Israel. It says in Joshua chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we have just crossed the Red Sea. We have entered for the first time, and our foot have stepped foot in the promised land. And it says, verse 5, and Joshua said unto them, pass over before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of Jordan. And take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of Yahweh when it passed over Jordan 
the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. So what happens is, as the children of Israel cross over the Jordan and they enter into the promised land, they were commanded to take 12 men, each a stone on his shoulder, and they would carry the stone out of the Jordan River, and they would set it up in a pile, and they would set it up in Gilgal. And they were to take stones from outside the river, bring them back in, and put them in the river. And you think to yourself, what a weird command. Why? You will find one reason why God says to do this very odd command. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? You'll have an answer. This was the reason. So they would have an answer. It was a built-in memorial. What would happen is the children would come by those 12 stones and say, Dad, why are the 12 rocks sitting here? And it doesn't say so that your fathers in time to come saying, what mean you by these stones that you shall, that you can answer them, that if you feel like it, you can answer them. So you will answer them. The point was not just to have kids pestering their parents for answers, but for parents to answer them. But brothers and sisters, in order for this to happen, parents needed to have answers. An issue in our evolving community is sometimes we as parents just don't have the answers we should. Hey mom, why do you wear a hat during meeting? I don't know, because the Bible says so. That's not a good answer. Hey dad, why does baptism matter? Why do we go all the way underwater? Do you have an answer, brothers and sisters? Do we know what God's principle that he's getting at is? Can we share it? Parents need to know how to fight giants because they need to know how to teach it to their children, to their Sunday school, and to their students. In Israel, you had an entire generation that couldn't fight giants, a generation raised in Egypt. And so from day one, God instituted a Passover. And he says, so your children shall ask, why are we doing all these things? You can tell them an answer. You will tell them why we do these things. God is very interested. He says in Malachi 2 in verse 15 in the RSV, has not the one God made and sustained for us the spirit of life? And what does he desire? Godly offspring. The answer was very important. They needed to have an answer. It's vital as parents that we lead our children to ask questions and always have the answers. And it's very sad when we see parents nowadays taking childlike approach to matters in the ecclesia. I grew up in a household where around the dinner table, on the way home from meeting, we would never ever speak negatively about our brothers and sisters. When we got home from meeting, it was never flip on the TV. 
We can't live a life of double standards, especially in front of our children. Build these learning opportunities in everything that we can. It is a command from God. That's what God did. And as we saw in the readings yesterday, we have to be an example in two things, word and deed. We can't just say that we need to do these things and not act as parents and not do them. Do we want our children in Sunday school to have a spirit of zeal and dedication? Well, they can't get it from me if I don't have that. So how do we get a spirit of zeal and dedication? Well, it, fortunately, it's not rocket science. Read the word, listen to classes, preach, listen to good music, read books, drown yourself in giant defeating instructions. One of the best things to do is just make the truth a priority always. Nothing can come before your life and the truth. Then there's a good chance that your kids may feel the same. Because you see, this was built into everything. The Passover. When your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? Ye will say. God built opportunities to train the children in everyday life, starting the very first day at the Passover. He says, it's important that we keep these beliefs alive. And he purposely built a reason to remember him into everyday life. Kids are many things, but two things stand out. They're curious and impressionable. You see, he still does this, doesn't he, brothers and sisters? You see, many brethren here can probably relate to a little example that I'll share with you. Back home at our ecclesia, we, like many ecclesias, we pass the emblems from row to row as we work our way back. And as I'm sure many of you brethren have noticed, the kids will just look at you in the eyes as you pass the bread to their parents, and they'll stare at you. And they'll watch the bread as they, their dad eats it. And they'll watch us pass it to mom, and they'll watch it go, and they'll go back to their game. And then you bring the wine, and it's the same thing. It's the wine comes down, pass it to dad, dad drinks it, mom drinks it, pass it back. Books are closed because for a moment, their mind is just focused on this really strange ritual, which we do every Sunday. Do you have an answer for them on the way home? Why you do those things? Why is there two? But what a fantastic, organic way to explain our first principles to them. God has built our children curious and impressionable. And he built these things so that the children would ask and the parents would answer. It was a way he organized his worship. Dad, why are those 12 stones there? Have a seat. They stand for God, delivering us out of Egypt, our victories over the giants, and God's mercy in bringing us into this promised land. Let me tell you the story. Well, the next generation, without proper education, sounds something like this. Dad, why are there 12 stones? Oh, yeah, there's 12 stones. They're a sign that God was with us. Which the next generation turns to, Dad, why are there 12 stones? You know, Grandpa used to talk about those stones. I think they had something to do with us getting into this land. Which turns into, Dad, what are those 12 stones? I thought there was 10. Which turns into, Dad, what are the 12 stones? I think it's a restaurant downtown. 
And these memorials that God puts into place without properly educating future generations can become diluted and eventually disappear. Brothers and sisters, do we know why baptism is necessary? Do we truly know? Do we know why we take both the bread and the wine? Do we know why we worship the way that we do? The reason is God built opportunities to train the next generation in everyday life. It occurs many, many times in scripture. The Passover, entering into the promised land, and enjoying the fruits of the land. We cannot ever, ever, ever forget the examples that we have on future generations. Because you see, there was a tribe who grew to be larger than any tribe geographically in the land. And it was because of their success in fighting giants and the people and the enemies of that land. It was because they could train from one generation to the next family of giant fighters. And we read in Deuteronomy 4, verses 38 and 40. To drive out nations from before thee, greater and mightier than thou art. To bring thee in, to give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Thou shalt keep therefore his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day that it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee. And that thou mayest prolong thy days upon the earth, which the Lord thy God giveth thee forever. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we can come to a tradition, a thing that we do in our ecclesial lives, and we could say, you know, I don't really get a lot out of this. This isn't doing much for me. But brothers and sisters, oftentimes, it's not always meant for just you. It's meant for others to ask why. We just need to make sure that we have the answers. And so as we turn to our last page on our quick guide, it's sad to say it, but we only have three questions left. The first question says, what things as parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, siblings, can you do to help the next generation take down their giants? It can be anything. It can be anything. I'm going to support my Sunday school. I'm going to have them over for a big water fight in the backyard. Whatever we can do to be examples, to just get ourselves around them and to be there to give an answer when there's a question. Question number two, find one key verse to write down and use as your main weapon against your giant. I'm going to flip through a few that we've used this week. A few that might be helpful for you, but they might not. But it'd be very helpful to just find a verse. There's a couple we looked at on Monday. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In Colossians. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you in James. What about the story of Caleb and Joshua's speech about how giants can be like manna that melts in the sun. Numbers 14, verse 9. What about the story we looked at in Deuteronomy chapter 2, that God was going to use Israel as an example of his might and his power. 
so the rest of the nations would tremble and be in anguish because of them. What about the verse about Caleb in Ephesians? The Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and of partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That can be us. About the work found in Hebrews 6, the diligence for the assurance of hope. To be not slothful, but followers. Once you've found your verse, brothers and sisters, the final question is where can we post, place, stick, write, or frame this verse that will be the best reminder for you? I recommend going back to question number two, which we answered on Monday. Where does your giant live? Maybe just grab a sticky note, write it down, slap it where your giant lives, just as a reminder that we all can beat giants. So as we prepare now to depart from what has been for me an incredibly uplifting and encouraging week around God's word, let's leave here having shed that armor of Saul, which weighs us down. And putting on instead the zeal of Caleb, the faith of King David, the dedication of Axa, the courage of Joshua, the humility of Moses, and the mind of Christ. May we approach our giants slings in hand, understanding that it is not the strength by our own arm that we bring it down, but in the strength of our Father who works in us. May we all meet together soon in the kingdom of our Lord as brothers and sisters who fought with giants until the end. May we look only to scriptures as our guide, and may we apply to our own lives these principles of the tales of the giants.